the book of Revelation, chapter 13. This is a very interesting chapter. In fact, it's one of the most significant chapters, uh, I would say, at least during the tribulation period. I, my favorite chapter is chapter 19, because that's when we come back to the earth with Jesus. And that's the thing I'm looking forward to more than anything. But there is a... Um, uh, this chapter this morning that we're going to be looking at, and we'll see how far we get. I, I, I want to just relax in this chapter and not try and rush it through because there is a lot here. There's a lot to talk about, and I think it's important that we do because uh, it's something that um, we need to know, we need to understand the times in which we live in, and I believe we are rapidly approaching those times that we're reading about um, when the, at any time here, the Lord can return for the church and we're going to be out of here. We're going to be gone. Uh, yeah, hallelujah is right. <laughs> and uh, we will be with him. The Bible says that we will forever be with him. And Paul says, comfort one another with these words. It is a comfort to know that our Savior Jesus is coming to redeem that which he has placed a down payment in, which is the Holy Spirit in you. If you are a child of God, that means the Spirit of God has indwelt you. That is the earnest. That is the down payment. But he is coming again to receive you unto himself. But these bodies will must be changed. They must be changed. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians, in a twinkling of an eye, it's going to happen just like that. The dead in Christ are going to rise. It's going to happen so quick. God doesn't need a lot of time for this to happen. He can resurrect the dead who have died in Christ like that, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up, will be transformed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, caught up together to meet him in the clouds. And at that moment, folks, do you understand that the events that we're reading about in Revelation, they begin to unfold. They begin to unfold like a, like a menu that you would read or, or, or the contents of a book. People are going to be reading. They're going to be able to see if they, if they get a copy of the scriptures going through this, air, this time of great tribulation that is coming upon the earth. It is coming. Do you know that? It is not some fairy tale. It's not some kind of fiction that somebody has made up that the church has just bought into. No, it's, there's no fiction involved here. This is true, folks. And let it stir you. Let it prepare you for the coming of Jesus. And when I say that, the coming and the rapture, I think we all know that there are two different comings in a sense. There's a coming for the church, and he doesn't even meet us on the earth at that time. At the rapture, we meet him. We're transformed, and we meet him. But the second coming, when he comes back to the earth, is a physical touchdown. <laughs> and boy, I'm looking forward to that touchdown. I want to see him spike the football. And so we are in that time. And this chapter this morning is pivotal because it speaks of one of the personages in this great tribulation period that is very significant. Not significant because of who he is, but significant because of the things that are happening and how it is preparing the way for Jesus Christ and for his return to the earth. Open with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Before we even get into Revelation, I want to set the stage. Many of you have read this passage. If you haven't read it, mark it, know it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Paul, in speaking to the Thessalonians, there was some confusion about when the return of the Lord would come. Certainly the rapture, but also the second coming. And he clears that up in these 12 verses in a small form. He had spoken to them about this, and he's just reminding them about this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, it says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask that not ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless at least two things happen. Notice what they are. That the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. We know this man of sin as the Antichrist, the very subject of the chapter we're looking at this morning in chapter 13 of Revelation. He is this 
a man of sin, the son of perdition. Notice who Paul says opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Yes, this being, this antichrist is going to set an image of himself in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And guess what? It's not there right now. I was there a few months ago. It is not there. What you do see is a Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque which belonged to Islam. There's no temple up there. The last temple that was there was Herod's temple, which was a a fortification of Zerubbabel's temple, an expanded edition of uh, Zerubbabel's temple after the children of Israel came back from Babylon. Yes, he's going to inhabit that temple, this Antichrist. But notice what it says. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Notice, and then the lawless one. That's another title of the Antichrist. And then the lawless one, he will be revealed. So what is restraining this from happening? What is restraining this Antichrist from being revealed to the earth? Folks, it's you and I. The Spirit of God dwelling in you and I. We are the light. Jesus told his disciples, he says, I am the light of the world. But then he said afterwards, now you are the light of the world. Because the very presence, the Spirit of God indwells you, and that very light in you is going to provoke people. It's going to bring about a change. It's going to stop the spread of sin. Have you ever noticed when people know you're a Christian, all of a sudden, they, they, if they have any consciousness or conscience left, a lot of times, if they've got a rotten mouth, they'll kind of they'll make they'll swear in front of you. And you go, oh, I'm, "I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that." What is that? Is it is that the spirit of God in you? Yes, it is. That's the light. And when we are removed, folks, there's going to be no restraint. That is what is restraining, and the restrainer is the spirit of God, and He is in us, and we are the thing that are it's in the way for real progress. <laughs> and I say that with an asterisk. The world wants progress. But notice, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. We, we see that in Revelation 19, in a, in, in a few months when we get to that, uh, with the breath of his mouth, and he will destroy him with the brightness of what is coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, lying wonders. Notice that, all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Because why? Why are the unrighteous perish? because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You receive the love of God. You receive Jesus Christ and you're saved. And it's the love of God that, 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 is, that is what does that. It's his love. And for this reason, notice, in this tribulation period that we're talking about, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Are you thinking to yourself, well, I can just get right with God. I, I'm having fun with my life right now. I'm drinking, I'm partying, I'm having all the time of my life. Really? Are you having a really good time? Has anybody uh, woke up on the floor of a bathroom after you've had a really good time? I have. number of times in my teenage years, without God, no concern for him at whatsoever. Is that really fun? Is that really a party? Is that something I'm really excited about? Is it something I'm even proud of anymore? No, I don't, I'm not proud of it at all. And if you think that you can have your party now and then after the church is removed, if that happens according to your belief, do you think you're going to be able to be strong enough to withstand what's coming, the delusion, the great delusion that God is going to bring upon the earth? Do you think you're going to be able to withstand that with all power, signs, and lying wonders that the Antichrist is going to unleash? Believe me, if there's any time in history to receive Christ, it's now. It's the easiest it'll ever be today. If you are not born again today, and for those of you who are online, if you are not born again today, you must be born again. Isn't that what Jesus said? 
in uh, John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, a very religious man. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Religion is not going to get you to heaven. Being a good person is not going to get you to heaven. Giving to the church is not going to get you to heaven. The only thing that's going to get you to heaven is God's going to look in your heart and he's going to see his own image in it. And if he doesn't see it, he's going to say, I depart from me. I never knew you. And he's not going to say it with any kind of joy either, because believe me, it breaks the heart of God for any soul to leave this earth without having his spirit indwelling them. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. It breaks his heart. So we must not be so flippant when we talk about the death of the evildoers in the world. It breaks God's heart, and it ought to break ours too. We ought to be thinking about them. And instead of... uh, being really nasty, let the Lord challenge your heart. Let him change your heart. Say, Lord, I no longer want to be this kind of person who's just ragging on everybody. I don't want to be, even if I don't agree with them, can I love them anyway? Can the church do that? It's the one thing that we can do that the world can't. We can love in spite of differences. Are there differences? Yes, you better believe it. Are those differences okay? It's okay. Just make sure those differences are founded in the word of God, you know what? The more you learn the word of God, the more you have the word of God in you, the more it's going to change you. And we're going to, by by default, we are going to feel very comfortable around each other. Why? Because we have the spirit of God in us and he is the one who unifies us. There is no political party that unifies us. There is nothing that unifies us except the spirit of God. Let's go to Revelation. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses. Let's read them. And then we're going to go through them. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little sloppy today, I'll be honest with you. This has been the most challenging two weeks in my entire life. For many reasons. Even this morning as I'm preparing for this, and I'm trying to put things together to prepare for you. Things just were not happening. Things that never, never happened to me before. And I either believe that God is restraining me, or it's the devil himself. And I believe it's the devil. I'm small fries compared to, to many. But I believe he doesn't want you to hear the things that you're going to hear over the next couple of weeks. Because it totally unmasks, I believe, his deception. It shows us who he really is. And I don't like talking about the devil. I don't like talking about the Antichrist. I'd much rather talk about Jesus Christ. But here we are. We have to face it. It's in the word of God, so let's deal with it. And it can't be at a better time. Because right now, folks, you may not like me for what I'm going to say today. But I'm going to tell you what I believe is the truth. So I'd ask for your grace. I'm trying to be very delicate in some areas And there's a part of me that I I, I can't not tell you what I believe is the truth. If it is the truth, praise the Lord. If I'm wrong, I don't have a problem being wrong. Let's read Revelation 13. The very first verse has an unfortunate translation. It's not really a a huge deal, but um, let me just say, when the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet was like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And we already defined who that dragon is last week. We looked at him in Revelation 12. This is nothing more than Satan himself. The devil. The dragon gave, him, gave this beast his power, his throne, his great authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority, notice, to continue for 42 months. What is 42 months but three and a half years? 1,260 days. 
Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy. Notice, against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. That's, at the very least, you and I and the angels, because we're in heaven at this point, raptured, saints, Christians. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. These are the ones that are still on the earth, those, uh, the Jews, And those who have given their heart to Christ during that time, they are called saints as well. But he is going to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Notice that. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity, and he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And so we get into this wonderful uh, chapter. Let's first go back to verse 1 here. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. This word I is kind of an unfortunate translation uh, because when you read this, it makes it sound like it's, it's John that's speaking, but it is not. If we look back, in fact, in, in the NIV and in the NASB, which is a New International Version and the um, New American Standard Bible, they give this translation, uh, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and that's really the better translation because if you back up to uh, Revelation chapter 12. You can look there with me if, with yourself. Look at verses 13 and chapter 12. What is the context of this? Sometimes when we have chapter breaks, it can disturb the flow of things. But notice what it says in chapter 12, verse 13 through 7. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, who was Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might flee into the wilderness to her place. We believe that's the rock city of Petra, where she is nourished for a time, a times, and a half a time, in other words, 42 months, from the presence of the serpent, who is the devil, the Antichrist. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away. And as you, as you read the rest of this, you know in context that it's speaking of the dragon. In fact, in verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the very next thing we read is, then who stood on the sand of the sea? It was the dragon. Satan. We know that's what he is. He's standing on the sand of the sea. He's watching from watching this from this beast rise from the sea, summoning it, you if you will, from the sea of humanity, whom he will empower with his authority. And we have to understand that this beast that we're referring to is not only a physical person, but it also embodies a revived Roman Empire that is yet coming. A revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire really collapsed. I, th- I believe it was in 476 uh, AD. It kind of cr- crumbled from within, but it lied dormant. And the elements of it are in Europe to this day. But there's coming a time when it will be revived, and a man of sin, this politician who won't be revealed, so don't even try to figure out who this man is. It's a fool's errand. <laughs> You can try if you'd like, but don't worry about who he is because we're not going to know. We can make some guesses. Can't be dogmatic about anything because he's not going to be revealed until we're left, until we're out of here. And we might be surprised of who it might be. So this beast will not only embody the revived Roman Empire, but it will also be a man. And notice that the dragon is not the beast, But the beast is similar to the dragon. They are distinct personages, but they are very similar. In fact, we've talked about the demonic trinity, and just like we have the trinity in the church, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Satan has his own trinity as well. Notice he mimics everything that God does. There's nothing original that he does. And the reason there's nothing original is because he has to counterfeit what he knows is true. And what is true is that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all the things that Jesus Jesus did, he is going to try and counterfeit. Even coming back on a white horse, we saw that in Revelation chapter 6. This conqueror coming, that's who he is, that's his personage. 
He, all he can do is mimic. And so that's what he does. Satan, he feigns to present God the Father, the beast, or the Antichrist as we know him. He feigns to represent Jesus Christ, the Son, and the false prophet who we'll look at uh, next week. He feigns to represent the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. And as the Son, Jesus Christ, glorifies the Father and the Holy Spirit encourages the worship of the Son, Jesus Christ, so too the demonic trinity does very similar. The beast, the Antichrist, gives glory to the dragon who is Satan. And the false prophet causes everyone to worship the beast, the Antichrist. See the similarities? Then I stood on the sand of the sea, uh, and the dragon actually stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads. And we, this beast is the Antichrist. We look, we, we've been saying that, and the government is closely tied with him. We'll look at more of this when we get into verse 2. But the word Antichrist is, is not, only appears five times in the Bible, in four different verses. In fact, the Bible speaks of the spirit of Antichrist in John's gospel, or I'm sorry, in John's epistle. He says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is doing very well. Jesus is not real. He's not the only way. No, he didn't come physically to the earth. He wasn't really born to the Virgin Mary. That's really just a, a nice child, children's story. It's not really real. See, that's what people say. That idea, that whole thing is the spirit of Antichrist. Anything that opposes Christ or goes in place of him is the spirit of Antichrist. Does that make sense? Anything that opposes him or is in place of him is the spirit of Antichrist, not the Antichrist. There's a difference. In fact, in 1 John chapter um, uh, let me do this. There we go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. What does John say in his other epistle here? He says, little children, it is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, now he's speaking about a man. John the Apostle. This is only the, the few times that the word Antichrist is in the Bible. He's mentioned by many other names throughout the Bible, but now John puts a label on him. And you'll only find it in John's epistles. Little children, it's the last hour, and, and, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now there are many Antichrists, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Even in John's day, it was the last hour. As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, we've been in the last days. We've been waiting for his return. And it's been almost 2,000 years. But one day with the Lord is a, is a, uh, with the Lord is a thousand to us, and a thousand to us is one day with him. And what does it say in 1 John chapter 2.22? Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son. Some say, well, I've got, I, I'm, I, I'm good with God, but I don't believe this Jesus business. Well, guess what? <laughs> you don't get the Father either. It's a package deal. Because he, Jesus is God's salvation. That's what his name means. Jehovah Shua, God's salvation. There's only one salvation, and that's God's salvation, and it's embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And in 2 John chapter 1, notice what John says. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Again, it means in opposition to or in place of. And believe me when I say this gentleman, when he comes on the scene, you've heard me say this before, but he is not going to be an unattractive man, I'm sure of it. He will not be ugly. He will not be a repulsive leader. But for as long as possible, he will look like an angel of light. He will appear like he's the right guy for the season, the right person at the right time. And here in the midpoint of the tribulation, he will show his true colors. 
We're going to see him putting an image of himself in the temple. We read about that in Daniel 9.27, that he's going to cause the, uh, the sacrifices to cease in this new rebuilt temple. Because no one is normally attracted to someone who is repulsive and filthy and morally repugnant. Are you? Most of us are not. Somebody who is... You know, there's a lot of people who aren't pretty on the outside, but they may have a beautiful heart. But when you have somebody who is, um, you're not attracted to people who are, are you know, filthy, they're repulsive, morally uh, decrepit. And the devil knows this, and he also knows something about the heart of man. He will deceive many by what we see as good and what we desire, not by portraying himself as an angel of darkness, but as an angel of light. An angel of light. His methods haven't changed over the years. He knows how to attract with beauty. There's a song called The Devil with a Blue Dress. And why is that? Because the devil's not going to come in a red, red uh, uh, spandex suit with the horns and a tail with a pitchfork. It's what men and women desire. The very best that the world and the flesh has to offer. That is what attracts men and women. And men and women, folks, we are both useful and effective tools of the devil. The devil hates men and women, but he really hates women. I'm convinced of it. He hates women more than anything else. And what happened in the fall in the garden? What, did, what was the consequence as a result of Satan deceiving Eve, what did God say to the serpent, to Satan? He said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this, I believe, is speaking, the devil hates women and he uses women, beautiful women, and ladies, if you are beautiful on the outside and you have everything going for you, be very careful. The devil wants to use you as a tool. He wants to do it for men too. Guys, if you have the whole package, or at least you think you do, be very careful. The devil wants to use you. But men, we are normally attracted by our sight. And the devil doesn't need to change his tactics. He comes as an angel of light. He's not going to bring something that you're not going to be excited about. He's going to make your heart throb. And you're going to, it's going to be everything you can do to stop yourself before you fall headlong into sin. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 13. For such are, pro, are false, pro, false apostles, excuse me, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of unrighteousness, those who will be according to their works, those whose end will be according to their works. So ladies, be very careful. Be very careful. The devil loves to take down, the devil with the blue dress has taken down many CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and smaller companies. The devil with the blue dress has taken down many pastors and leaders in the church. The devil with the blue dress has taken down university professors and congressmen and presidents. No one is immune to it. He doesn't need to change his tactic He's not going to be repugnant and repulsive. He's probably going to be one of the most attractive men. And he's going to have all the gifts. People are going to flock to him. They're going to wait in line to get the mark of the beast, which we'll talk about in a week or two. There are many names that this beast has in Scripture, and here are just some of them. He's known as the, fierce, the king of fierce countenance. He's known as the prince that shall come. He's called the willful king. The one who comes in his own name, whom Israel uh, will receive as, as a Messiah. He's also called the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. We also know that he's the little horn, the coming prince. 
son of destruction. He's called the Antichrist, the rider on the white horse. And we know him here in the 13th chapter of Revelation as the beast. So notice in that first verse here, back in our text, he says, I stood, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rising up from the sea. What does this sea mean? It could be the sea used as a sea in general, but usually it's speaking of the Mediterranean Sea. Often in Scripture, you'll see the Great Sea, and it's referring to specifically the Mediterranean Sea. And I think that's really interesting because throughout the Old Testament, you see whenever it's used like that, it's speaking of the Mediterranean. And it's no surprise to me that, that it is the Mediterranean because this is the sea that's bordering on the land that's going to be the foundation of this revived Roman empire. If you've been to Europe, you know what I'm talking about. It's interesting that mankind over the, at least the last hundred years, has been actively pursuing a one world government. One leader to rule them all. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. One ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. I think Tolkien had something, a lot of types in the Lord of the Rings concerning the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan and God. There's a lot of types that he has in there. But mankind has always tried to, especially in the last hundred years, to try and formulate a one-world government. It started with the League of Nations in 1919, and then that was replaced in 1945 with the United Nations, originally starting out with a 51-member team or member nations, but now, as of today, it's 193. And the European Union, there's a group, a conglomerate of nations that want to form together and have one leader. They're all screaming for a leader. We want a leader to rule the whole thing, this whole thing is so such a mess. Man can't rule himself. If there's anything that we've proved over the last hundred years is that man cannot rule himself. He doesn't know how. He's not capable. Only one who is perfect can do that. And before Jesus Christ returns to the earth physically, the Antichrist will have secured, at least temporarily for himself, this one world government. And that is where we are headed, folks. But it will all come to an abrupt end at the return of Christ in Revelation 19. And we will come back to the earth with the Lord at that time. So the desire for a one world system, even a one world religion, it goes back even farther than all of this. It goes all the way back, even to the Tower of Babel. The fact that the world had one language was not a problem until pride and humanism came to the forefront. In, Revel- or, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 11, uh, as, uh, in the chapter 10 of Genesis, it speaks of the, le- the, um, the table of nations. When Shem, Ham, and Japheth came off the boat, they scattered all throughout the earth. They had one language. And then finally... They journey from the east where they find a plain in the land of Shinar, which is, by the way, in modern-day Iraq, modern-day Babylon, where Babylon used to be. That is where this occurred. The Tower of Babel was originally there, and we call that, that place today, we call it Babylon, and it's still there today. It's in ruins for the most part, but Saddam Hussein in the 90s was doing a great job at rebuilding it. But notice what happened. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Here's the sin of their heart. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. God didn't want them to be building an altar to him, but made with hands. They should have known better, but they resisted the command of God. We're going to build something. And not only that, it wasn't even to God. They worshiped pagan things. They did horrible atrocities on that tower. And their intention was to do evil things. They said, let us make a tower, a city whose top reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. For ourselves. Does that sound like pride or humility? (laughs) lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And the Lord saw all of this, and he came down. He confused them all. I don't know how God did this, but in one moment, and just like that, they're all speaking the same language. Hey, hand me that that shovel over there. I need to dig this hole to get this brick in, or whatever. And God says, all of a sudden, they're talking, and they're like, what are you talking about? No comprende, amigo. (laughs) All of a sudden, languages 
They, they don't understand each other. God broke up the languages. They couldn't understand it. Was that God's grace? I think it was. Do you think he did it just because he, didn't, he was afraid that they might overcome him? <laughs> They're building a tower. I'm going to be overrun. Was God that way? Was he nervous? Was it his grace that he said, I'm going to confound you because the attitude of your heart is so sinful, it's so wrong, if I don't intervene, there is nothing you won't do. He knew the heart of man. Man didn't even know the heart of himself. And in God's grace, he confuses the whole mess. Man wanting to build, govern ourselves, one religion, one government. Sounds so good, doesn't it? In the natural, it does. Be nice, wouldn't it? One leader. But this demonic rebellion began here in Genesis 11, and it will ultimately end in a rebuilt Babylon on the very same spot that this Tower of Babel, this very same area in the land of Shinar in Iraq, it's there, folks. I've seen pictures of the ruins of Babylon. And Saddam Hussein, as I said, he, he was rebuilding those things in the 90s. He thought he was like a rebur, reborn Nebuchadnezzar. That's who he, that was his protege. <laughs> or that was, that was his, uh, the one he looked up to. He built palaces, beautiful palaces. They're all over the place there in Babylon. And guess what? When the Gulf War came, it's interesting that they weren't destroyed. They kept them. From what I understand, the Allied forces weren't allowed to touch those buildings. They left them standing. I wonder why. Could it be there was, they looked at them and got, wow, this guy put in a lot of effort. Wait, let's hang on to those. They might come useful sometime. Uh, duh. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> Babylon has already started. It's just a question of time. But you and I will be removed, and then it's going to go in full force. And it won't take much time, folks. It doesn't take long to build, especially now with the tools we have today. But at some point, his, the Antichrist headquarters will be based in Babylon. Perhaps one of the mysterious reasons, uh, like I said, Saddam's uh, palaces weren't destroyed during the Gulf War. And we can read about that when we get to Revelation 17 and 18. We'll see his center based there in Babylon, in a rebuilt Babylon. But notice, it goes on in here in verse 1 and says that there were seven heads. This beast that was rising up out of sea had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And this is the revived Roman Empire that the Bible tells us about. And we don't have to look very far to find out the answer to this, because it's who cares about our opinion? Let's just go right to the Bible and see what the Bible tells us. In fact, I'm just going to summarize this, but I want you to read this for yourselves. I'm going to summarize it because we don't have time to get in this to this today. In Daniel chapter 2, these four kingdoms that were going to succeed Babylon, Babylon is the head of gold. Persia is the, the chest, the arms, the Medes and the Persians. That's why there's two arms. That's of silver. Greece is this bronze uh, waist area. Rome is the, the legs of iron. And then the iron mixed with clay in uh, the revived Roman Empire. All these world kingdoms have come and gone except for the very last one. We know that Babylon was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were taken over by Alexander the Great, from the, the leader of Greece. And he was ultimately succeeded by Rome, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire imploded upon itself in 476 AD, I believe it was. And they've been lying dormant ever since, only to be revived in the last days. And believe me, the world is waiting. They don't even understand any of this because they don't believe any of this. Notice that each successive metal decreases in value. There's a reason for that. As man tries to govern himself, it becomes more base, more base, more useless, more base. The head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. The body of silver was the Medes and the Persians, Darius and Ahasuerus. The bronze was Greece. Under Alexander the Great. So we see these kingdoms, the first four of those have already come to pass. 
And right between that Rome and that one at the bottom, the revived Roman Empire, is where we are. We're at the end of that. We're getting close to that. Because when the church is removed, this plan will go into place. It'll create, an, create enough stir in the world. There's going to need to be some leader to make sense of all this. People are going to lose their minds when the church is removed. It won't make sense. It's going to be very scary for the world. Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 further portrays these four kingdoms in the likeness of animals. And we're just going to look at Daniel 7 because I think this chapter is is important because it gives us even more information than uh, chapter 8 in some areas. But we're going to see that Daniel, as he portrays In chapter 7, he portrays the head of gold, this Babylon, as a lion. He's going to uh, personify the Medes and the Persians, the chest and the arms of silver. He's going to personify that as a bear. He's going to personify Greece, this belly of thighs of brass, as the leopard. And he's going to talk about the Roman Empire that was, that that, that, that was... uh, destroyed by itself, actually, in 476. He's going to describe that as a horrible beast with ten horns. And there's going to be two waves of that. Two different layers to that. The one has already happened, the one has yet to occur. And he's going to speak about that as this the feet of iron that you see at the very bottom where it's going to be iron mixed with clay. It's going to be brittle. It's going to have some of the strength of the former Roman Empire, but it's going to be brittle. It's not going to be as strong. And so I'm going to read to you. You can write these verses down, but I'm going to read them to you because as we go through them, you're going to see quite the difference. And it will define for us, by the way, as we read these chapters specifically, you're going to see these five heads, and these ten horns, or these seven heads and ten horns, we're going to see the, um, those defined for us. So let's read it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel, of course, writing, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed, and then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What is the great sea? It's the Mediterranean, right? Stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, these, these, these world powers, each different from the other. The first was like a bear. Remember when we were talking about Bible interpretation, that if it, you can take it literally except when it starts to employ certain things that you know that it's, it's meant to be symbolic? This is it, Okay. We understand that by reading already, there's something weird going on. It's speaking of us in types and in pictures to get us an idea. But these things are, are types. I saw in my vision, uh, let me see, and the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. That speaks of Babylon. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And later on in Daniel, or earlier in Daniel, we, we found out why that is. That makes total sense if you read the book of Daniel. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. And this is the Medes and the Persians, represented by the it raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And these three ribs uh, represent three nations. I believe it was, um, uh, I don't want to go there right now, but it's not really important for us at this time. But those represent three different nations that the Medes and the Persians had conquered. They had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another beast, like a leopard. And this is speaking of Alexander the Great, who was a very young man, died at 32 years of age from malaria in Babylon. This leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, and this is the beast that we're concerned about, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong. It had huge iron teeth, and that's what that that image that we saw of the iron legs. It speaks of the Roman Empire. It was a, a terrible beast, very similar to the other beast before it, now kind of combined into one really horrible, vomitous mass. Can I use that term? I just did. So... 
I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I got to back up. A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in, pieces, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Hmm. Daniel, back in the 5th and 6th century B.C., is telling us about something that John is be, that's being revealed to John here in chapter 13. Huh. I wonder if it's the same God speaking the same message might be a coincidence. Of course it's not. Here it is. It was different from all the other beasts. It had ten horns. It was, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn. Does that sound familiar, this name, the little horn? Coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And then skip down with me now to verse 19 of that same chapter. And notice, Daniel says, I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, teeth and iron and nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, speaking again pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And notice in verse 21, it says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. Thank God for the Ancient of Days, a reference to God. He came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. This is toward the end of the, uh, of the tribulation period. And thus he said, notice he defines it for us. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings. There we go. We don't have to look any further. It's defined for us. Who are these ten horns in Revelation 13? They're ten kings. Who shall arise from this kingdom? And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. And then the saints shall be given into his hand. These are the saints in the tribulation period. These aren't part of the church, but they are believers and Jews who have believed in Christ. He's going to allow them to be given into this Antichrist hand. Notice, for a time and times and half a time. Have you heard that before? That's three and a half years. A time is one year. Times is plural. Two years. Two plus one is three. Half a times is a half a year. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. Sounds like we're talking about the same thing. Hmm, must be a coincidence. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. That's you and I, folks, and those who will be going through that tribulation who are believers. Notice, his kingdom, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And so we figure out who these ten horns are. And if we look over in Revelation chapter 17, actually go over there with me. And we're probably going to have to end here today. I intended to get a lot further. But one thing that I don't have the gift of is being verbose. I don't, I don't like to talk, as you can tell. I really don't like talking about the Bible. You know, I, I get started and I just I wonder what to say and I'm having a hard time. Thank you for uh, laughing. Because <laughs> we, need, we need some humor, don't we, in all of this. A little bit of levity in this darkness is pretty good. But notice with me, even Revelation 17, we'll look at the first three verses and then we'll look at a few other verses and then we'll stop there for today because we've got a lot more to go next week. But I don't want to rush this because it's important. Let the Bible be its best commentary. Define these things. You know, if you know the Old Testament, and if you're just a, a, a casual reader and you read uh, critically, actually, don't be a casual reader, read critically, read and think any, everybody in this room can read and think. Write things down, go back, read it again. Read it, think about it. Don't just take anybody's word for it. This 
Seven heads and ten horns is very, not only did we see it in Daniel, and we saw it in the context of this revived Roman Empire that's coming, that the Antichrist is going to be the head over, but we also see it in Revelation chapter 17, which we'll get to weeks to come, and it defines it very clearly for us. I'll be honest with you, there's still some mystery about this that I don't quite understand, but there's sufficient here to tell us what these things are, and then we just have to leave it alone. Notice. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, these are the angels. Remember, we're talking about the bowl judgments, right? Because in Revelation 16, we see the first, or the, the seventh angel, or the, the, the last seven plagues on the earth, the bowl judgments, or the, the bowls, the vile wraths of judgment, they are going to begin in Revelation 16. But notice what. John says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, one of them came and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We'll talk more about her later. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Does this beast sound familiar? We're talking about it today which is, has full of, names, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Hmm. Daniel told us about that. John here in chapter 13 is telling us about that, and we're getting further definition of it from here in Revelation 17. Go down with me to the seventh verse now. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. We know that that's going to be the Antichrist. The very spirit of the the devil himself is going to uh, inhabit this man on the earth. We'll talk more about him next week. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel and those names whose names are not written in the book of life from uh, from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. And here it is, defined for us very clearly, but I'll be honest with you, still quite challenging. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sets. But notice, there are also seven kings. So these seven heads are actually two things. Uh, Seven mountains on which the woman sits. There's only a few cities in the world that have been called the city of seven hills. There's only a few of them. But it's also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And we believe that one that has not yet come is the Antichrist. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Notice the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they, will, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And so we know that in the last time that we are going to see this Antichrist, he's going to rise up and he's going to take control over three of these kings. And then he's going to be the one standing up. He's going to be that little horn, that one speaking pompous words that's going to Deceived by craft and military exploits. And he's going to deceive the whole world. This is the being that we're talking about. I'm kind of glad we're going to stop here because it's right about here that I was having all kinds of troubles. And I didn't plan that, believe me. But I'm really glad. I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, that's really great, Lord, because we're not done. I believe some of the stuff that we've got to yet look at is going to be very interesting to you. It's going to be challenging to you because we live, folks, in a world that is being prepared for this man of sin. Next week I'll talk more about that. It's, we live in desperate times. We live in desperate times. But I want to encourage you that in spite of all of this, there's no need to fear. There's no need to fear. We're just getting off to the start here in this chapter. We'll probably be in this chapter again next week. 
We may spend three weeks on this chapter alone because there's a lot here. But there's no need to be afraid. Because God has gone before you already and he is the one who is at the end of all of this. In fact, Jesus said, I will be with you to the end of the age. That was the promise, was it not? He is going to be with us to the end of the age. Right now, he is with us. He's going to continue to be with us. My prayer for all of us as we go through this crazy time, and believe me, I have, a, I have an opinion, and I want to ask your, opinion, or your permission next week. I want to give you my opinion Next week, I want to ask for your opinion, or ask for your permission so that I can give you my opinion about what is happening. I may be wrong, but I don't, I'm, I'm not confident that I am. I don't think that, again, I'm not a know-it-all. There's a lot that I don't know, and I'll be the first one to admit it, and I'll, I'll say things wrong from time to time. But as I'm sizing all the things that are going on, as I'm sizing it all up, I'm trying to put some semblance of order to it in my mind. Based on what I know of the word of God, it's becoming clearer and clearer, and I cannot deny it any longer. And it's going to ruffle some of your feathers. I'm not going to get deep into it, but it's going to challenge you. And I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I really don't care about my will being done. My will is nothing. God's will. But as I look at these things, and I look at what's going on in the world, and, I, and the things that I'm reading and seeing, it is, everything is lining up, folks. It is, it is, it's amazing to me. So I would ask for, <laughs> as we approach next week, I, I want to um, ask you to pray about that. Because some of you may not like it. But i got to tell you what I, what I believe to be true. And again, I hope I'm wrong. So, I pray that God fills you with his spirit this week. I pray that he fills you completely. That you experience his love for you and your family. I pray that he would protect you from all the things that you're going through, all the health risks and all of the things and the, all the things that we can't even imagine. There's so much deception, folks, so much. And, and I don't even know what the truth, I know what the truth is, but that's all I know. Everything else is suspect. Can you agree with me on that? But you know what? God is able. He is still on the throne. He's never left his throne. He knows exactly what's going on. And you know what? He's given us enough to encourage us. I'm so glad that the good shepherd, and we'll look at this idle shepherd, this one, Zechariah calls him the idle shepherd, I-D-O-L. Not the idle shepherd, I-D-L-E, where he's sitting on, you know, playing Nintendo. No, he's not an idle shepherd, he's an idle shepherd. I'm so glad that the good shepherd loves us so much to tell us the truth. He tells us in advance. And why is that? Is it because he wants to frighten us? No. He tells us so that we're prepared, so that we can tell others what we know. Because when I share with you what I'm going to share with you next week, you're going to, you're, some of you are going to be like, oh my gosh. And I hope I'm wrong. It's not going to be a thus saith the Lord, but you know, as I look at it, I'm like, God, if, this is, if there's not something to this, I must be losing my mind. And that's possible. So, be encouraged and keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes in the word of God. Don't allow yourself to be sidetracked. Be careful about what you watch. Be careful about what you hear. Be careful of how you watch and be careful how you hear what you hear. We are not impervious to things. If you're like me, I'm like a sponge. I got to be careful about what I'm around because I attract those things and they come into my heart and into my life. I must be careful. Pray for me too, please. I want to be filled with the truth, even especially in this, in the word of God, but I want to be filled with truth, the reality of everything that's going on. That's all I care about. I don't care about anything but the truth, even to my own harm, even to anybody's harm. The truth is the truth, and it will set us free. I love the truth. Don't you love the truth? 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. What a wonderful and glorious good shepherd he is. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we come before you and again, Lord, and just pray that, Lord, you'd continue to pray, uh, continue to um, encourage, Lord, our hearts and draw us closer to you, Father. Help us in these days, God, to, to be diligent, Lord, uh, to be purposeful in everything that we do, in a, purposeful in our relationships, purposeful in the words that we use, purposeful in the food that we put into our bodies, Lord, purposeful in everything, Lord, that we could be as healthy as we can be, Lord, knowing that you desire that for us, Lord. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. If that be the case, Lord, help us to take care of this temple. Help us to take care of ourselves, Lord. And help us to encourage and love one another, God, and not be biting each other and gossiping about each other. Help us to be known by the love that you have. For greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Lord, help us to lay down our lives for each other, to love each other enough to tell the truth in love and to encourage and exhort. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.